Chapter 21 of The Keeper of the Bees. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Keeper of the Bees by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter 21 Then Comes a Vision. When Jamie reached the road, he crossed it and started down a steep embankment leading to the hot sands of the sea and the breaking waves. As he was going down to his right, he noticed a stone projecting in such a manner as to make a particularly attractive seat. From the feel of the package, he thought he knew what he had. So Jamie went over and sat on the stone screened on one side by an unusually large toluash, its lilied white trumpets blaring widely from blue edgings. Next to it, a rose mallow towered, ten feet tall, a flaunting cloud of rosy pink accentuated by maple-like leaves of silvery green. He reached in his pocket, drew out his knife, and, opening it, opened the bag, also, and found what he had expected, two very large, very red tomatoes. It was the time for his morning tomato juice. Jean had been thoughtful of him. She had decided that if he would not have the juice, he could eat the tomatoes and get his vitamins in slightly different form. So Jamie laid one tomato on the paper beside him, and with his knife cut the stem end and the core from the other, and began peeling back the thin skin in small pieces and cutting out the tomato in chunks. He found that he was enjoying it thoroughly. He had formed the tomato habit. He'd gotten to the place where, if he did not have tomato juice at ten-thirty, his stomach arose and shouted for it. While he was sitting there enjoying his fruit and watching the hundreds flocking back and forth on the beach, family parties here and there sheltered by beach umbrellas, people in bathing suits lying on the sands, children playing in the breakers, swimmers floating far out, the everyday life of a beach in summertime, there broke on his ears from behind him a clamour that, to say the least, was startling, and then there came pouring down the embankment at his left the most surprising aggregation of humanity he had ever seen collected in one crowd, little Mexico with straight black hair and black eyes, with rosy cheeks and red lips and shining teeth, sober little Yaqui, with blue-black hair, with square, narrow face, with wide mouth and shining eyes and red lips, little Italy, the prettiest sight, with tumbling curls and olive cheeks and always the lips of red and the white teeth. Little Spain was there, wide-eyed and lovely, and China and Japan and Greece, and shiny little copper-coloured Indian faces with the straight hair, deep-set, watchful eyes, the high cheekbones and sober faces with lean, flat bodies, and the prideful lift of head, of the proudest race that ever walked the earth. As this amazing combination poured over the embankment around him, Jamie noticed that each youngster either carried a small basket or clasped a small package. Some were boys, some were girls. All of them were shining-eyed, all of them were young, all of them were beautiful, each in its own way, beautiful with the beauty of a perfect thing in the flower of youth. Those who reached the sand first paused and looked back and beside Jamie, so near that he could have reached out and laid a hand upon it. There came down the embankment a narrow arched foot and a slender leg clad in hiking boots. Then came khaki breeches, and in an instant more there stood out back toward him a tall, slender girl. The figure never could have been a boy. There were decided calves to the booted legs. There were rounded hips and arms and the profile of a shapely breast. There was a gracefully lifted neck, and it was topped with a shorn head of hair so thick that it stood out at the sides and on the top, and turned over in big soft curls, and sloped down to the neck at the back like the hair of a boy. 
When the foot lifted and took one step forward, Jamie looked down into the track that remained in the sand and drew in a deep breath, in which he recognized sage and beech primrose and sand verbena, albeit heavily laden with garlic and mangoes and tamales. Jamie's heart stopped right where it was and stood still so long that he did not know whether it was ever going to begin beating again or not. He shut his eyes tight and a strand of wet hair whipped across his face and drew him. Then he opened his eyes to make sure and saw the shorn head and in his heart he cried, Oh, what a pity! What a terrible pity! How could she sacrifice her crowning glory, a mane of silk like that? He watched the graceful movements of the slender girl as she went down the beach and seated herself a few rods in front of him. The little flock gathered round her. He heard a voice that he'd heard before, that he knew perfectly, saying, Now, children, before we have our lunch and before we begin to play, we must have our lesson just to see if you're going to remember when school is not in session. What is this before you? In concert the children shouted, Pacific Ocean! And what is back of you? Sierra Madre Mountains! And what is above you? Sky! And what is it you are sitting on? Sand! And whose country is this? Each little individual shouted for him or herself, My country! And who of you can recite my country? The air was waving with little hands. The teacher pointed in the direction of a little Yaqui Indian boy. Isadora, you try. The little fellow stood up, brought his heels together, removed the little straw hat he was wearing, and because he knew what the child was going to say before he began, Jamie could distinguish. My country, tis of e, sweet land of liberty. The teacher of Americanism smiled on the little fellow and said, Right, Isidore. That's fine. Now who can tell us what liberty is? Again the air was full of hands. The teacher indicated a little girl of Mexico. Maria, you try. Maria answered promptly, waving her arms like a windmill over the sands and toward the mountains and the sea and the sky. All this with no fights. The teacher applauded. Then she asked, And who was the father of your country? Little Japan knew. George Washington. And who is our president? Little Greece and Spain and China shouted in unison, Alvin Ulrich. And the teacher laughed and applauded again. By this time, quite a crowd had collected. Children with fairer faces had gathered and were listening and looking on. Grown people were passing before and behind the group of twenty-one, according to Jamie's count. They went on with their affairs without paying the slightest attention. The teacher opened a book the size of a school atlas, and taking a pencil began to draw. Mechanically, Jamie finished the tomatoes, wiped his knife through the sand, and then, on his trouser leg, snapped it shut and restored it to his pocket. Then he arose and walked down the beach until he stood within three feet of the back of the girl he knew, and looked over her shoulder in company with several other people. The girl had drawn up one knee, and the big book rested on it. The other leg stretched out along the sand in lithe comfort. The head was bent, and with the right hand in quick, precise movements, Jamie saw there was being crudely sketched the figure of a man. When the work was sufficiently completed that the component parts stood out plainly, the pencil rested on the round head, and instantly most of the youngsters touched their own craniums and shouted, Head! Then they proceeded down the anatomy, naming neck, shoulders, arms, hands, body, knees, feet. 
Then the pencil went back to the cranium and began making upstanding strokes on it, and each youngster lifted his or her hands to his or her head and shouted, Hair! Then came forehead and brow and eyes and eyelids and eyelashes, and by this time, as each part of the face was named, the teacher ran a line out to the margin of the paper and whirled it into a circle, and inside that circle printed very plainly, Nose, Eye, Ear. Every feature of the face was being reproduced and named. Jamie noticed as this proceeding advanced from the ears downward that the space that they had left for the mouth was large. He stood almost breathlessly watching while gums were placed in the mouth and then teeth and a tooth. The mellow voice of the teacher was talking almost constantly. She opened her mouth and exposed firm milk-white teeth. She ran the eraser of the pencil across them to indicate that all of them were teeth, and all the children showed their teeth and ran a finger across them and shouted, Teeth! Then she touched one of her front teeth and said, Tooth! and held up one finger and indicated one tooth. Then all the little brown children found a tooth. She stuck her tongue out, laughing all the while, a very pink tongue glowing with health, not a sign of a bilious coat on the extent of it. And all the little brown people stuck out their tongues and shouted with laughter and immediately fell to making faces at each other. Isadora made such an ugly face at little Mexico that Mexico threw a handful of sand, and a scuffle began on the outskirts. The teacher sat laughingly watching. Then her voice was raised to call them to order. Very distinctly, she pronounced the word, Tongue. And all the little folks kept showing their tongues and telling each other that they were tongues. Then she drew the tongue in the mouth of the figure she was working with, and from the tip of it she swept the pencil over to the margin and rounded the circle in which she meant to write the word. At that instant, there was the slightest movement behind her. Someone knelt at her back. A big brown hand flashed over her shoulder and firmly imprisoned her hand in the pencil it was holding, held it in a grip from which there was no release, and with extreme plainness in the circle she had made, one little ugly word comprised of four letters was printed. She was forced to print it three different times, and under the first writing there was one underscoring, under the second two, under the third there were three very broad and black. The words that were written were, LIES. Lies, lies. Then her hand was released. She was free to go on with her lesson in Americanism. As Jamie arose from his knees, he kept his eyes on the back of the girl, and what he saw was that aside from the slight tensing of her figure that he had felt as he leaned against her back, there was not the least indication that she recognized the presence of anyone behind her. There had been no resistance in the hand he had held. It had yielded to his use, and he had used it to write the ugly word as forcefully as he could write it. After he had released the hand, he saw the surge of red that flamed up in the cheek next him. He saw the pencil whipped over, and the erasure of the words he had written begun. He was on his feet, heading down the beach. He was dying to look back, and he would not. The question that was hammering in his heart and brain was whether she would follow him, whether she would speak to him, if there were only a rock. If he could only stub his toe, if he could only pretend that he'd fallen, that he might look back and see whether she were coming. But there was no rock, there was no slightest excuse for looking back, unless he did it deliberately, and he was too scot-stubborn to let the girl see, if she happened to be looking his way, that he would turn his head for her. The whole thing had been so unexpected and so bewildering that his brain was only functioning as far as proceedings had gone. He had not reached the place where he could think progressively, consecutively, conjecturally. He was simply putting distance between himself and a girl who had lied to him, lied outrageously. 
He had experienced the satisfaction of letting her know that he knew her, and that he had called her a liar about as definitely and emphatically as a man well could, but he had not gone farther in thought than he had in action. Right there he reached a rocky projection that ran down until the waves were breaking at its base, each wave creeping higher. Jamie was in no mood to stop for water. He went through, and as he rounded the rocks it seemed to him that there was an opportunity for a backward glance without being discovered. So he took the backward glance, and what he saw stopped his heart again. Away back on the beach in a sedate circle, mute and wide-eyed, with their lunches gripped tight, waiting the command from their beloved teacher were the little brown and red and chocolate and copper-colored children born in the United States, products of our soil, entitled by our laws and our government to be educated with our children and to live with them, to love with them, to fight with them, to die with them, all free, all equal before the law. They were huddled there waiting, while their teacher was coming down the beach in flying strides. Jamie thought in all his life he never had seen anything quite so beautiful. The storm girl was running as an Indian runs, perhaps her body a bit straighter, her chin thrown a trifle higher. The ocean breeze was catching her thick red-brown hair and blowing it back. He could see the broad white forehead. He could see the flash of the brown-gray eyes. He could see the surge of red staining the cheeks and the lips and even the throat. He could see the heavy sprinkling of freckles that the sun had drawn out, not only crossing the bridge of the nose, but scattered over the entire face. In a minute, with the sweep at which she was coming, she would reach him. All Jamie could think of was that he must not be caught peering around a rock. To preserve his dignity, he should be striding down the beach with his head up, with his shoulders square, his back toward her. Let the little liar run after him. Let her catch him if she thought she had anything to say to him. At that moment, with anger flaming hot in his heart against her, Jamie whirled on his heel and looked behind him. He saw that he was standing before a crevice in the overhanging rock that led back to what looked as if it might be some kind of a subterranean passage. Before he realized what he was doing, he'd gone plunging into the black depths until he brought up precipitately against walls which would afford him no further retreat. He turned in time to see the shadow of the storm girl's figure as she splashed through the waves in passing the opening. Immediately he was back at the entrance. She was still racing down the beach in absorbed pursuit. Jamie darted into the water around the point and did some sprinting on his own behalf. By the time the storm girl could have retraced her steps, he was across the road and hidden by the live oak, the madrono, the manzanita, and the sage of the mountainside. Hurriedly he made his way back to the corral. He found Jean exactly where he had expected to find her, on the back of a horse, circling the riding course that surrounded the corral where the horses were being sold. When she saw him, she rode up to the railing and asked, "'How do you like this one?' This one was, to Jamie's way of thinking, the poorest horse of the three. "'What are his points?' asked Jamie, and laughed outright at the femininity of the first response. "'Well, he matches my suit, for one thing. You wouldn't have to telephone.' And for another, he's got the wind, and he rides easy, and he likes me. He seems as if he kind of needed to be loved and petted up a good deal. He seems like he could be better looking than he is if he was rubbed up a lot, and fed right, and ridden with some sense. Most of the kids that get on these horses think they're on a piece of machinery, and they don't care whether they break it or whether they don't, so long as it doesn't belong to them. This horse could stand quite a bit of being treated decent. Jean stood in one stirrup, drew the other leg across the horse, and deftly dropped to the ground. I haven't put any of them to the final test, she said. Let's try it. 
She called to the attendant and said to him, Bring my horses and stand them along in a row headed toward me, right along there. Right along there was an imaginary line perhaps four feet in front of her. When the horses were so disposed, Jean stood in front of them. She looked them over carefully. She walked up to each horse, and one at a time she laid the length of its head against her body. She cupped her hands around their ears, pressed in at the bases, and drew them through her hands two or three times, and then slid her hands down under each cheek and under the throat and hugged the head tight. Precisely what she did to the throat and muzzle, Jamie could not tell. This performance she repeated with each of them, with the horse she'd been riding last, and it seemed to Jamie that her touch was lingering, that she hugged it slightly closer. She certainly finished by laying her cheek against its nose. Then she backed away eight or ten feet and uttered a funny little whinnying call, and of the three horses the one she'd ridden last stepped forward and immediately went to her and again dropped its head to her touch. Jean laid her hand on it and said to Jamie, If this is the horse I think he is, if he's my horse, he will follow me. She gave one more light stroke around the ears and across the nose and said to the horse, Come on, chief, and started down the corral. The horse followed her as she might have been followed by a dog that she'd trained for a considerable period. That settled the horse question. All that remained for Jamie to do was to make the reservation, to set a date when chief should be delivered and where, to stop on the way home and purchase the saddle and the crop upon which he insisted and then to make as straight a journey as possible to the Garden of the Bees, because there was lumber to arrive for the stable, and John Carey was coming next day to help him, and the carpenter he had engaged to build a shelter for Chief. When they left the car line and started up the road toward the bee garden, Jamie, from an impulse whose origin he could not have guessed, faced Jean. "'Everything all satisfactory?' he asked. Jean stood very still, and finally— she raised her eyes, and in them Jamie saw precisely what he had seen in the face of the storm girl, when she had left him without a word and written a letter to say it afterward, so he understood. He kissed her again and said, You run along home now, and I'll telephone you when I have the stable finished and the horse is here. Then you can come out in the car and bring your dad and mother and Nanette and let them see Chief and show them how you can ride him. I'll tell them that the horse and fixtures are my gifts to you, for saving me a lawsuit, or any disagreeable complications in keeping my property. Will that be all right? And Jean the versatile, Jean the ever-ready-to-talk, Jean of the school playground, of the diving raft, of the beaches and mountains, of the picture studio, of city and country alike, turned a small, quivering back, and silent, wordless, walked away. Jamie went up to his door alone to find out what the premonition had been, that had kept him from bringing the child with him. End of chapter 21 Read by Sandra